everybody. It's Brandon Busteed, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. It's a Thursday, but for my kids, it's Friday because they have their last day of homeschooling assignments today. So uh, if you hear any excited noise in the background, that's kids celebrating their Friday school day. Um, in any event, uh, I'm delighted to have one of the world's top experts in learning science with us today. Bror Saxberg, who is the Vice President of Learning Science at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Most people know it as CZI. Um, and Bror, look, the whole world has been thrust into a different, uh, for many people, a different modality of learning, all kinds of different challenges with that. We're going to talk about this today, but, but somebody with your knowledge and insights, I think, is, uh, is, is more valuable than uh, than you've probably ever been in terms of what you can share with the world. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, and I would love to maybe just have you start with a little bit about your background. You know, how did you get into this? Uh, and a little bit of the work that you're doing now at CZI. I'd love to. Well, Brandon and, and others, thank you very much for inviting me to come and join you all here. Um, yeah, I started life as a research guy. I used to do human and machine vision research work at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Laboratory a uh, long time ago, back in the 80s. And, uh, you know, from that time when I was mostly just looking at pure research and publishing, uh, I transitioned through some time at McKinsey where I was trying to learn how do you put together people and ideas and equipment and resources and get them to go all in the same direction, which I thought was essential for laboratories. But in the course of doing that work, I really got attracted to the idea of impact at scale. And so from the mid 90s, when I left McKinsey until now, I've really been just in a series of assignments looking at how do you take what we know from the research of learning and more recently research around motivation, and identity and other things and put them to practical use in large settings, uh, especially making use of technology wherever that makes sense and gathering high quality evidence to help you start to iterate and make things work. So. Um, spent time at a place called Dorling Kindersley, uh, helped start K-12 Inc., which is a virtual education uh, uh, provider, uh, and we were able to use learning science to really get that initial curriculum up and running, and then had the great fortune of uh, uh, being hired by Andy Rosen into Kaplan, where I was chief learning officer, and I think, Brandon, that's where I met you, uh, as well as some others here, uh, in, uh, and, and did that for like eight or nine years, and then three years ago or so, uh, joined, uh, uh, you know, the, the ranks here at, at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And my work here, in some ways, it's similar to what I've been doing all along, which is, well, how do we use evidence to make better decisions uh, around education and learning? And that can be purchasing decisions, publishing decisions, ed tech development decisions, but especially the decisions about instruction. How should teachers and students and technology and media and text all work together uh, to make the best use of what we know about learning and motivation and context uh, to achieve uh, really the best outcomes for students. So at CZI, we're looking to say, how do we give all young people uh, you know, the, the skills, the knowledge, the capacity, and the agency uh, to thrive for the rest of their lives, uh, especially from communities that have been perhaps the most underinvested in so far? Um, so that's kind of what I, that's what I bring to this uh, work and this conversation. 
Well, it's a, it's a fascinating background. And, and I do remember the first time we met, it was when I was at Gallup, uh, you were at Kaplan. And one of the big engaging conversations we got into was uh, around uh, the, the example of taking something like a tool like StrengthsFinder, right, which was based on people's kind of innate talents and thinking about how that might be applied in terms of a personalized learning context. And I just, I remember uh, the, the fascinating, you know, conversations we had around that. I think you know, you, uh, you've hit on a number of things that I want to get to as kind of second and third questions. You know, I want to start with the, the experiment, let's just call it, that has happened over the last 60 to 90 days, right? Uh, about 1.2 billion learners around the planet, uh, whether they liked it or not, were forced into distance learning. <laughs> and um, some schools and universities were way better prepared than others. Some, you know, faculty and teachers were way better prepared than others. Um, you know, and, and I would say some students and parents were uh, either more ready or better prepared than others. We've got all kinds of issues in here. We've got equity issues and access issues and things like that. Let's just start at the high level though. What, what so far from your perspective are the big takeaways, good, bad, or otherwise from the last 60 to 90 days? So yeah, and uh, I'm an MD-PhD, so I trained as a, as a physician as well as a researcher. And we used to call these sorts of terrible circumstances that we might learn from, we call them experiments of nature. You would never do this to a community or a person, but when things happen like this, you sometimes can really see things that were less visible before. Um, so some of the positive things I think we've seen are that Technology, unlike the pandemics previously, especially go way back to the 1918s, technology can make a real difference to maintain communication, to continue uh, connections and work uh, in ways that just haven't been so reliable or useful in, uh, in decades past. And that, that's a powerful thing that I think many people have been experiencing and guessing, huh, something might be valuable about this. But now, you know, it's kind of like the, the legs were kicked out from the stool and, you know, we've now had to just hang by our technology threads and make it work. And uh, that's where you start to get things that worked well and things that did not work well. But you do see outlines of what can happen uh, going forward. I think another thing that was made, uh, and you, you, you uh, alluded to it in your comments, uh, Brandon, that, man, we were not ready for something like this. That, especially schools, but right. I would argue companies as well, that you know, to, to really just lose completely the classroom setting, uh, in some cases, even as simple as having a valid email address for all the families and students. In right. many communities, you know, 30% or more of students cannot be found electronically, right? And a lot of that was just, well, what for? You know, we'll tell them in school. We don't need to email them things. You know, we'll just hand them paper. And now when it was cut off suddenly, you realize, oh, man, we need to have better access. Um, and, uh, and I think also both on the health side as well as in the education side, again, especially K through 12, but not only K through 12, the, the, the digital divide and issues of uh, context and uh, inequity have, have really come to the fore. Uh, death rates, just stunning differences among different communities, uh, especially you know, black and brown communities, communities uh, that are impoverished compared to other communities. 
But similarly in the education side of, you know, uh, people's access, digital, the digital divide and access to devices and bandwidth or spaces like what we're in, right? We're, we're here all pretty relaxed in our little dedicated spaces while we have this deep conversation. That's not the norm for a whole lot of kids. And yeah. so um, all of those things then have, I think, been really uh, revealed in some ways uh, by what's going on here. The final thing I'd say is, so there was an emergency effort in the spring. It's like, ah, what do we do? What's interesting now is there is some real systematic effort through this summer uh, by uh, teachers and families and school leaders and others to say, okay, okay, how can we do this better in the fall, knowing that it's likely to be in and out of school for a while, that things are not going back right. to just normal. And I think that's really promising because people are seeing we have to get better at this as opposed to, well, oh, well, that was that, this is now. And it's like, no, we must get better at this. And I think that's really uh, potentially a, a fuel source for innovation going forward. Yeah, obviously, we're, we're going to have more time heading into the fall. It's not a lot more not time. A lot. <laughs> uh, you know, there's still, you know, you know, if you think about it, the, uh, you know, the process of getting this as good as we can possibly get it still won't be a 90 day time frame or a 120 day time frame. Like there will still be work to be done. But, but I do think you're right. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to take the optimistic view of this, right? On the one hand, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start with a pessimistic thing and try and end on an optimistic beat. But, you know, you think about, uh, to, to your point, you know, students that don't have access to the internet, right? Students that are trying to borrow Wi-Fi from the nearby McDonald's, which is a story that happened for some of the scholars in the, in the Kaplan uh, Education Foundation program. Uh, or, you know, they only have one uh, internet-enabled device in a household of four or five or six people, right? And so the, the practical reality of some students getting support even from their parents, right? And if they're K-12 students, parents may not be home. The parents are working full-time, right? There's just all kinds of hurdles here. We'll, we'll park, park those massive challenges for a second. On the positive side, right? Um, there's a lot of innovations coming from this, and there's a lot of thoughtful questioning around what do we really value most about education, whether we think about that in the classroom or out of the classroom or something like what are the components of it that matter most? I think I even see my third and fourth graders starting to get smarter about that, right? Like, well, that was a really good session, and it, because of this or that, or this is totally useless, mommy. Why are we doing this? Like, they're becoming smarter consumers, more engaged, I would argue, with their learning because of what we've been forced to do here. Um, and and I, I heard a really cool story from uh, one of my mentors and former professors. Uh, he's now uh, in his late 70s. He's still teaching. And uh, he was so excited to, uh, to learn that he was, was able to teach online for the fall semester because, you know, he was deemed in an age group that, you know, if he didn't want to come back to campus, they weren't going to force him to come back to campus. Well, the reason why he was so excited is because he said, I've come up with all kinds of ideas that I could have never done on campus. He said, every class, I'm going to have two alumni from, you know, coming on, on my Zoom class and talk about it, engage in the topic we're doing. He said, I could have never done that in person. So it's just, I hear these, I hear these excited uh, examples of, of things that could truly move us forward here because of the situation we've been forced into. I think we're gonna see innovation in the classroom and online. And I'm just curious if you think about, you know, what, um, what are the components? You, when we were chatting before the, 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 the live uh, feed here, 
you talked about the active ingredients of learning. Could you just, just take us there? Because I think right now we're all locked into this silly mindset of it's online or it's in the classroom and we have preconceived notions of both of those. Uh, but, but you said, let's not get the cart before the horse. Tell, tell me about that and tell me about the active ingredients of learning the way you're thinking about it. Yeah, and I think you know this is as true pre-COVID in classroom situations and technology-delivered uh, education situations as it is now, which is too often we get focused on the technology for learning, whether it is a teacher or whether it is a computer. And, and we can often get ourselves trapped into kind of thinking through a deficit-based uh, lens where we're thinking about what's not available through technology compared to what can be done in a classroom. And I think we really have to flip this around. This is true of thinking about our learners too, to, to have an asset-based approach to say, wait, what are the things that really work well with this way of delivering education? And that's again, true for teachers, but also true for technology. I really love your story about bringing in a couple of people. It's easy to do in a Zoom session because everybody's sitting there online. And boy, is it complicated logistically in a live session, right? So the trick is to be aware of these new things. And then the cart before the horse issue is, before you get all excited about the technology and what it can do, even though that's fun to do, you have to start from how does learning work in a human mind? And how does motivation to learn work? What, you know, why is a student going to start, persist, and put in mental effort into this work? Right. And what do we know about the practice and feedback uh, uh, that's needed for a mind to become good at this? And that's independent of whether it's done by a one-to-one -one tutor sitting right at your side or a classroom setting or, you know, online synchronous or online asynchronous, that what is it your mind has to go through to actually build the mastery that, that you need. And once you have clarity around that, then you look at the affordances of whatever the technologies are you have available. And then you can start to say, oh, 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 I can get this active ingredient that really is the key part of learning. It'll look different online, but it actually is here. And I can actually make that actually work. Um, and I might, if it's okay, Brandon, uh, you know, talk about this malaria example, which is yeah, in healthcare. Yeah. yeah, in healthcare, you know, we have a deep understanding now of the molecular biology of healthcare, that the nature of the, the the vectors of the disease, the mosquitoes, the life cycle. We got so much technical information about how malaria works, and we agree on that across the world. So that's at the foundation. Now, what's happened is the solution in, let's say, a major U.S. metropolitan area to a malaria problem is uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs, a regimen, right? The solution, let's say in sub-Saharan Africa is uh, chemically treated mosquito nets. So if you parachuted in from Mars, you could say, this is really strange. In America, in the big cities, you have chem chemistry driven healthcare. And then when you go to sub-Saharan Africa, you have furniture driven healthcare. Must be some different religious persuasions, right? And it's like, no, not at all. That the science, the understanding at the core of what is going on in the world is the same, but the constraints and the affordances lead to solutions that look really different in one place compared to the other. And that's what we should be trying to do in our education world is not have things look the same, not necessarily design for implementation fidelity, 
but rather designed for implementation variability, where the variability should be all about how do we use active ingredients and the context to make learning work better and better, and then iterate, because you're not going to get it right the first time you try it, context by context, audience by audience, and, and then iterate. And I think that's where we need to go, and we're beginning to see aspects of that especially I think around some of the non-academic aspects of learning where right. issues of identity, of, of, uh, of stress and trauma, man, COVID has brought that up. That Some families have had enormous stresses because of job losses, uh, health issues, deaths in the family. And some educators have had those same issues in their own families. Yep. And you cannot learn if you are under serious stress, that's a biochemical, literally your neurochemistry is blocked by cortisol from running the learning machinery. Well, so we have to think about the active ingredients for stress reduction, for, uh, uh, for self-care, mindfulness, all kinds of things. And how do we make that work through the different platforms we have available? I think more and more folks are aware that that's going to be a really critical part of this fall as people are coming back from deeply stressful months. This is not like having two summers in a row. This is a deeply stressful four to six month period that's going to change how students are and how teachers are as they come back. Yeah, I mean, you, ra you raised some really good points. I mean, I, I think there's a few people that are, that are starting to talk about that, you know, the context of stress as it relates to learning, right? And, and there's been some good articles uh, over the last couple of weeks about how CEOs and leaders have become comforters in chief, uh, right? And so a lot of us, I think, are going to have to be very thoughtful about rethinking our roles, whether we're managers in the workplace, teachers, faculty, parents trying to be supportive, right? Fellow students uh, thinking about, you know, the, the, the context of those things. And, you know, I, I you know, I wonder to what degree, you know, there's, there's another good, uh, we'll use a healthcare example in this, you know, I think I continue to hear from so many people uh, that, you know, well, you can never, you can never replace the kind of human interaction that takes place in a classroom, right? It, it's just, and, you know, it's a statement that's out there. It's a commonly used, well, you can never, it's never going to be the same. Well, true, it's going to be different, right? But what I think we have a big failure of imagination around is, is the, the ways in which this kind of environment or, or you know, online or distance environment can be deeply human and deeply engaging. And you know, there was this article in the Washington Post last week about um, the, the amazing intimacy of online mental health counseling, right? Zoom-based or, or video-based mental health counseling where both the practitioners and the patients in these uh, situations actually believe it's as intimate. In some cases, they actually prefer the medium of being able to do a mental health counseling conversation in a one-to-one -one video chat, right? So, I mean, we, we know that there are examples where remote can be very human and connected. Can you talk us through some examples, maybe across K-12, across higher ed, where you have seen what you would consider to be world-class examples of building human connection, uh, creating a culture or identity with an online class, right? I just, I would love to hear some of your examples around debunking this myth that you can't do something deeply human in a distance environment. Yeah, Maybe well, we can't. Maybe your answer is we can't. No, I, I, think, I, I think it relates to our earlier conversation, which is 
you know, technology can do some things that are very difficult to do within classrooms and uh, regular classrooms and teachers in regular classrooms can do some things that are difficult for technology to do. Um, until social robotics gets a little further along, a hug for a seven-year-old, uh, you know, I, you're not. Now, post-COVID, that's a scary thing, I thought, maybe, for the teacher, if not the student. But, you know, the, there's, there's just things about being, you know, primates together uh, that, you know, are incredibly powerful affordances that uh, create conditions of safety and belonging. But it's not the only way to do that, right? And then there are other things that technology can do um, to actually adapt to the context of students and teachers uh, to allow different experiences that are better suited to individual students or subsets of students and teachers uh, to head towards the same goal. And so being able to do that, I think, is powerful. The other thing that's powerful, and there's been some empirical work on this, especially um, with uh, kids uh, who are uh, on the autistic spectrum, uh, who often have some challenges with uh, interpersonal relationships. There have been some fascinating work with uh, 3D simulations, even virtual reality kinds of simulations, of having kids practice and, and, and be in uh, social environments of different levels of complexity, and then be able to get coaching. And, you know, let, let's, let's watch the game tape. Let's watch the game tape as you walked in to, you know, uh, buy some milk from this store. And uh, the simplest solution was great, but now you had something happen on the side. How did you react? What do you think about that? And the ability to do that is, is the kind of affordance that technology provides that's almost impossible to do in the same way uh, in, in the real world. Um, I also think, um, and many of us have been on these things and I've heard these comments, you know, the ability for something like Zoom to let you take uh, a, a group of 300 people and turn them into 60 sets of five people hmm. having a conversation about what they just heard, it's incredibly aligned with learning science, right? Compared to two hours of listening to somebody meander on, the ability to alternate rapidly between, okay, here's a thing to think about, here's an example to think about, here are things to do, here's a situation. Now, go work on this as a group. Talk about how you would handle this. What do you think is going on in here? That practice component of production in a small subgroup together is incredibly valuable for building both social and emotional capacities, but even the cognitive capacities as well. That is how our learning works, is we produce, and by doing so and getting feedback, we cement things within our, uh, our, our nervous systems. And so it is non-trivial to have a room full of 300 people and have an effective conversation among five people. I actually really hate the turn and talk approaches that are often taken yeah. because I am so distracted by 150 other conversations that are happening, you know, one chair away from me that I have real trouble focusing on what my nearest neighbor has to say. Whereas with this technology, it's like, boom, switched off. Now I'm talking to you and we have a chat place and we can put up a document together and we can actually work on something together and I can be focused on the human being as if it's just you and me in this room, right? And then boom, we're back again. Yeah. I don't even have to shift rooms, right? So the logistics yeah. of going back and forth is, is I think an incredible asset that we are only beginning to scratch the surface of how to use. 
Um, and this is just as true for corporate learning as it is for you know, other things. One last thing I'd say about this is this is also really important for professional development for our trainers and teachers. We keep forgetting that they are under stress too and that they are having to do brand new things. In some cases, things they never imagined they wanted to do. That's for the younger teachers or trainers. I, I don't, I've done it this way. I don't do it that way, right? And so they come into a, 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 the requirement to do things different, just like their students do with a mix of uncertainty, nervousness, uh, lack of efficacy, um, but also affordances, things they know how to do and that they can put to work. So we have to build for those teachers professional development in settings like this that gives them the chance to practice and get feedback and try it again and try it again, as opposed to assuming what we send us the memo out on how to run an effective Zoom session. I don't know why all these kids are complaining. Well, it's like, that's not how learning works at all, is to get a memo, especially for new complex cognitive and non-cognitive behaviors. So, so I just think there's a lot that can be done and we have to look for those affordances rather than be trapped by what we might not be able to do in the, in the, right. in the technology setting. Well, I think you've, you've just given an amazing example, right? That's aligned, as you said, to learning science, right? And the current technology that most people were forced into, which is exactly what we're using here, Zoom. Uh, but, and it's as simple as just knowing that there's a feature in Zoom where you can take a larger group and break them into subgroups for discussion. I mean, I was in an online course that I took that did just that. We had about 38 total students. And so we had, you know, the group live video lecture with the professor. And then, you know, every time he would go over a simple concept, we'd break out into subgroups of three. And we didn't have to move chairs and we didn't have to rearrange the room and, you know, all the things to your point, the logistics. So, you know, but it, it's like how many teachers uh, so far have discovered that they can break out, you know, somebody into sub subrooms in Zoom. I mean, those are the things that now we can prepare for this summer in time for the fall, that even if we're still using the same basic, you know, technologies around this, uh, there, there can be some notable improvements. And then, I, you know, I wonder too about- the just, on, just on that point though, just on yeah. that point though, one thing to add to that though, just, just to be clear, you see the, the magic is not the technology. Right. Because you can break into subgroups and have it be a total disaster. Yep. The, the question is, what are you asking these minds to do? Yep. And we know from learning science that a productive conversation where you have to create something or describe something or produce something and ideally get feedback from your colleagues about whether that was well-designed or not well-designed, right? That has nothing to do with the technology. That has to do with how learning works. And so part of the trick is how do we help our teachers and even developers uh, understand those learning principles so that they then put them to work with the technology of breakout rooms that we actually have available, right? So it's not enough right. to just have the breakout rooms available. You have to have a sense of what am I doing with minds through that to make it actually work. Yep. And the feedback point was the thing I started thinking about as you were talking with my own kids, right? Like the, one, of the, one of the things they're missing right now in this, you know, kind of quasi homeschool, you know, framework is feedback. You know, they're getting assignments, they're doing the work, mom and dad are helping them to the degree that we can or know how to help them, right? And then, uh, you know, we, we scan a document and we send it to a teacher 
and right now there's just virtually no feedback for, for, for the kids, right? So to think about how could I as a parent, even if that isn't gonna happen as part of the, you know, the program the school's you know, putting us through, you know, how can I create more moments of feedback, right? Or, or how could I take my third yep. and fourth grader, I've seen them starting to work on homework together, right? Schoolwork together where they're helping each other. Well, you know, I, I actually think that's a good thing, right? Where they're interacting, like they're debating and we're not weighing in, like, you know, we're, we're like stepping back. Um, so on this, on this point, like, you know, we're, we're on like really good practical advice right now that we can all think about. Like, t give me, give me a couple other great examples. Practi number one practical advice tip for a parent, you know, number one practical advice tip for a student and then for a teacher. Like, what would, what would you say, uh, you know, no, knowing that, you know, no, all the schools are going to be doing something probably a little different. Like, what would be your number one tip for each of those groups? So tricky, Brandon. Uh, <laughs> or you can pick one, you can pick one, but I, I want to I see if I can get you an answer for each of the three. I, I was going to pick 15, but okay. Okay, um, okay, that's fine. No, 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 no. So, so uh, actually, I, you know, the first thing I would say is to, to not be afraid to uh, allow the non-academic issues to dominate for a while, right? Is your child or your teacher, frankly, uh, stressed? Uh, are they uh, nervous, whether it's about uh, their academic setting or frankly, you know, their life setting, right? And look at what can be done to create a, a supportive relationship, a trust-based relationship around you. Can, let's talk about this and see what we can do about those things. Because again, minds just will not learn if they are under stress, no matter how much we wish they would. And it's so easy, especially this fall, for people to say, oh my gosh, we're so far behind. You know, state tests are coming up in the spring. We got to do academic, academic, let's go, let's go, let's go. And to miss the fact that you know, you're, you're going to you know, not actually get this to work right. So that's one piece. The second piece I'd say, and I think this holds for kids as well as uh, teachers and such, it's the piece we were just talking about, which is, you know, keep looking for opportunities to practice. And they may have to be unusual now because you can't rely on that to just happen in school. But this is where ask your kids, what are you learning? Tell me about it. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a whole series of re research uh, um, and there's a, uh, a set of experiments that have been done to, to look at having kids teach their caregivers something from their, uh, uh, from, from their world. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it turns out that has many benefits is to allow your kids to teach you. It removes the pressure from you to know anything right? Which is the problem now, right? You're feeling like you have to tutor your kids and it's like, I'm here if you should be, right? But if your kids are teaching you, there's no problem being a numbskull because that's okay. Dad is a numbskull, you know, it's all right. And, and then it causes the student to produce and, and to, re, to practice this thing. There's actually a company called Power My Learning that has these units that are virtual based on this research that does this kind of thing. And then the final thing, when you do it, even in a school-based setting, it turns out it allows parents to really see how their kids are yep. and they can actually even give better feedback to the, uh, back to the teachers and so forth. So that notion of more practice and looking for opportunities for kids to practice, I think is another just key thing to hunt for in this, uh, in this uh, strange time. 
Well, I, I love I love both of those points, right? Making sure we're taking care of the human needs before we jump immediately to the learning performance or testing or we're behind or whatever it is, right? And uh, you know, and then the second piece of you know the opportunities to practice or you know have have stu have a student try to teach mom and dad what they uh, what they think they learned for the day. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you, you know, one of the things I was really encouraged by was that um, just the last week, our our principal at our kids' elementary school at a uh, Zoom call with parents. And all she wanted to do was get our advice and input based on the experience we had had over the last 60, 90 days, right? And what was amazing That's to so me was how immediately engaged parents had to become in their children's learning, right? Some parents were already very you know, plugged in. Others you could tell you know, were not, right? By some of the comments that they were, they were saying, but um, it was an amazing set of ideas, thoughtful suggestions, you know, where the principal didn't suggest that she had all the answers. She was crowdsourcing input from all these parents who, you know, now have some interesting insights into their children's learning, into how the school could better help them. So that to me was another wonderful example of where positive may emerge here is that, you know, not just the student, you know, taking more ownership or autonomy over their learning because they have to, but you know, the parents and then the connection between the parent community, a teacher community, a, you know, or a principal leader well, and, who's just trying and, to innovate. One more thing I'd add to that one is uh, what's beautiful about that also is accepting that you might not know the context of your families and the kids uh, yeah. as a teacher, because often there is a mismatch between the context and culture of teachers and school leaders and the communities they serve, often multiple communities. Right. So being willing to really open up to deeply listen to what has happened to your family and to your neighborhood and, 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 and listen, I mean, not tell them, I think this has happened to you, but actually listen to it. That gives you then fuel by which to say, aha, so we're going to have to do some different things for different sets of folks here. And that is fine. And that's that's what you learn by asking for that input. I think that's just such a powerful example you just gave. Yeah, and that was a principal asking for input, but yeah. you know, this is a great oh, golden opportunity do. for teachers to ask for that input from students in ways that you know, they're honestly asking for that help and input. So, um, and, and, to share, and to share between the students, right? Part of, yep. part of what you need to do is weave your student group into a learning community, virtual or otherwise. And some of that about is really understanding where are students? And where do they come from in ways that are uh, affirming and warm and helpful rather than sort of stereotyped or grounded in assumptions? And again, thinking about it from a strength-based position of you know, wh what has gone well in your lives, not just what has right. gone wrong in, in our lives right now. And so th that kind of work, I think, is just so valuable for teachers and students to engage in here at the beginning given how widely divergent experiences of families are, will have been over the last uh, four to six months. Yeah, well, I think this is a good note to finish on, right? Your, your last point about looking at what is it, the asset-based model around this as opposed to the deficit-based model. A lot of us can complain about, oh, I can't do that, or I can't do this, or I'm forced to do this, right? And we, we all are, you know, the, the expression, we're all in this together. As a learning community, we are in this together. And if we start to look at the, the asset-based view of this, there's a lot of new opportunities we have, right? Including the dinner conversations that we now have every night because everybody's home, <laughs> at least in our household that is. 
and we're, you know, like we're more engaged than we've ever been in learning. So, um, so I'm going to take those as, you know, the, the asset-based model here. Really appreciate your time, Broer. Thank you for all your contributions to this field. And, uh, and for those of you who might have good questions uh, that you'd like Broer to follow up on or me to follow up on, make sure you add them to the comments on this LinkedIn feed and, uh, and we'll try to uh, give some thoughtful written responses back as well. So thank you very much, sir, for, for your time today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me.